Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Welcome to this week's episode of the TLS podcast. I'm Theodine Arduzzi, an editor here at the TLS, and Lucy Dallas, our arts editor, is here with me too. Hello, Lucy, and how are you? I'm fine, thank you, Thea, despite the uh, hail. How are you doing? Um, I'm all right, thank you. I'm um, Well, I'm thrilled, actually. Uh, thrilled to announce, seamless segue here, uh, the return of the exclusive TLS subscription offer. Exclusive, that is, to our podcast listeners. For just £5 or $5, or the equivalent currency wherever you are, you'll receive six issues of the TLS. And that involves print and digital. So you receive the paper every week by post where you find all the pieces we talk about on this podcast alongside dozens of others. So this week, for instance, you would find, let me think about it, you would find the uh, essays of Salman Rushdie and also um, Adam Mars-Jones on two new films about amnesia and forgetting, as well as access to everything online and in the app edition, so archive pieces as well. And then it's the extra special part is that you also get the historical archive for all that, and that goes back to 1902. So that's where you'll find uh, Walter de la Mer and T.S. Eliot, and you can read what Virginia Woolf made of D.H. Lawrence, Joseph Conrad and Aldous Huxley. And that's really yeah. only the beginning of it. It is. If you're feeling European, you can get a bit of um, Roland Barthes, uh, Umberto Eco. We had as we quite a lot of Sylvia Plath's original poems, I think. Auden, I've gone non-European now, but or American, Saul Bellow, John Updike. Um, there's all sorts of riches, actually. They really are. And especially when you get back, the 60s was a very good decade. It was surprisingly groovy. Uh, it was very TLS. groovy. <laughs> <laughs> Anyway, um, go to the-tls.co.uk forward slash pod to take up that offer. Now, coming up on this week's show, um, why the Romans built so many temples and Euripides as seen by a poet and a comic book illustrator. The TLS's classics editor, Mary Beard, will talk us through a few of this week's articles. And a new platform for writers. Colin Grant introduces us to Writer's Mosaic. But first, let's turn to Jane Austen, subject this week of a long piece by Devaney Losa, prompted by deep archival immersion. The central question appears simple. What exactly were the Austen family's ties to the institution of slavery? The answer is, predictably, rather more complicated than many would wish. Devaney Losa, Regents Professor of English at Arizona State University and the author of, among other things, The Making of Jane Austen, joins us now to shed light on this vexed matter. Hello, Devaney. Hello, Thea. Thank you so much for joining us. I know it's very, very early where you are, so extra thanks for that. This question of the Austen family's involvement in the slave trade, it's been a topic of investigation for 50 or so years now, and you know, it recently boiled up and very much reduced by the more uh, reactionary newspapers. Um, before we come to your own research and what it tells us about Austen's politics, can you give us a sense of the context in which you, as a literary historian, are and have been working? Yes, so I've been working on the political afterlife of the Jane Austen's family and uh, have been very interested in their relationships to social justice movements. Um, I've done most research so far on the relationship to the suffrage movement, but a lot of that information obviously also took me into questions of racial injustice and, uh, and abolition. 
and these are subjects that scholars are very interested in, of course, for all of the figures we read and study. But Jane Austen has come in for some extra scrutiny for good reason. And, and the whole thing has been dogged by uh, mistakes and misinterpretations and overreactions and confused reactions, um, hasn't it? A, a very common one being that Austen's fiction itself is silent on the subject of slavery and colonialism. Yes, this is still being repeated. And it goes back to Edward Said's argument in 1992 in Culture and Imperialism about one line in Mansfield Park having to do with silence and what I think is a misreading of that line, although reasonable people might disagree about how to understand that line about dead silence in Mansfield Park. But it seems to me the dead silence that Austin describes is actually being criticized, not endorsed. Yes, because the um, the silence on that part comes from the it's the children of the Bertram it's the Bertram family children, isn't it? And we're not encouraged to think well of them. So the fact that they don't say anything or engage means that we we're immediately suspicious. Is that how you read it? Absolutely, Lucy. I I think the whole point of the conversation, and it is to be fair, a brief conversation, is to talk about. Sir Thomas Bertram, the hero's father's return from the Antiguan plantation that the family's wealth comes from, and Fanny Price, the heroine, asking him a question about the recently outlawed slave trade, which Sir Thomas is said to have answered in the text. But some of his children respond to Fanny's question with a dead silence. And I think this could be a, a way of pointing out their <laughs> their unfairness, right? Their their unwillingness to engage in these questions rather than an endorsement of it. Um, I mean, but that that's not the only reference, is it either? I mean, there, there's more. No, there are absolutely several references. There is a, a misunderstanding that Mansfield Park is the only place where she references the slave trade. There was a piece in the National Review this week arguing that it's not true. There are references to slavery and the slave trade in Emma where a conversation between Jane Fairfax and Mrs. Elton about governesses also brings in a conversation about slavery in a fairly controversial but interesting way. Uh, there are references in Jane Austen's letters to her loving the works of Thomas Clarkson, a famous abolitionist. She talks about being in love with him as an author. Uh, this obviously seems to suggest not only that she read Clarkson, but appreciated what's going on in his work. There's a reference in Sanditon, her unfinished last novel, to a character, Miss Lamb, who is a mixed race West Indian heiress. So this idea that Austin was not very um, involved in questions of race and racial justice in her days, is it's just not, not true. Well, I mean, if you think about it for even just a second, it sort of seems impossible that someone who's so switched on um, in so many, in well, in every way, would, would not engage with one of the most pressing conversations of the time. I completely agree. And you know, these are really complicated issues, incredibly difficult to try to parse. And I feel very lucky to have had the help of several scholars in writing this piece, especially the legal expert, John Avery Jones, and the colonial history expert, Patricia A. Matthew. Both of them were very central to my getting parts of this piece uh, right. And of course, they're not responsible for the errors in it at all, right? But, <laughs> and I'm sure uh, I'll introduce all my own as well as we continue to talk about it. <laughs> Um, another point in coming back to out of the fiction and, and, and to the life or the lives of, of the Austin family more, more widely, and this is a major point, there's been a kind of a misinterpretation about the role of Jane Austen's father, George. You say that his role has been both underdescribed and overstated. Can you, could you bring us up to speed on that, please? So the Reverend George Austin was connected to the Nibs family, a white saddler family in Antigua that owned property that benefited from the labor of enslaved people. There was certainly a personal connection to that family. There was also a legal connection. That is, George Austin served as a co-trustee, as we now know, of a marriage settlement in which these profits were going to need to be extracted and transferred to the next generation legally. And that's the place where Reverend George Austin took a role. And he was not a principal trustee, as is sometimes reported in the scholarship, 
but a co-trustee with another man. And I've, in the piece that I wrote for the TLS this week, I've described this other man who is also a very interesting man, Morris Robinson, with far more legal uh, and estate experience. So he obviously was the one being brought in for his expertise in those areas rather than George Austin. And he's also a man, uh, this this Morris Robinson, um, with some very interesting connections, which which sort of reach out in all sorts of different uh, interesting directions when we come to think about the Austins, but also specifically Jane Austen. Yes, and this Morris Robinson's background has not previously been noticed or explored. He was the brother of Elizabeth Montague, Elizabeth Robinson Montague, Mrs. Montague, the so-called queen of the blue stockings, and also the man whose son was later informally adopted by Mrs. Montague. They were a close family and the two siblings were close. So Morris Robinson was not only an expert in the law, he was very much tied into these uh, blue stocking intellectual circles through his sister. And this is the closest we've ever been able to tie the Austins and the Robinson Montagues. So it, it does raise a lot of interesting questions, as you say. Um, but so this relationship, just to take a few steps back with James Langford Nibs, uh, so they were very, very close friends, and it, and it goes way back before their, their days at university together at Oxford, George, uh, George Austin and James Langford Nibs. Um, so, and, and that's what allows us to place George, uh, to know that George was undoubtedly involved in the transfer um, or in overseeing the transfer of ill-gotten profits. Stop me if at any point I'm, I'm getting this wrong, of course. But well, I um, think there's, there's one part where you're not getting quite right, Thea, and that okay. is we, we don't know how connected they were before their days together at St. John's College, Oxford. We know that they were first connected there. Oh, okay. And, uh, but they continued to be connected after their time together at Oxford, where George Austin was uh, took three degrees and was at the end a proctor, and the younger man, James Langford Nibs, was a student. So they came into contact in Oxford, certainly, but the part that we haven't noticed previously is that George Austin actually married James Langford Nibs and his cousin, the heiress Barbara Langford, putting him right there at the moment of the marriage settlement. It would explain why George Austin was there in a legal way, because he was there in a, a spiritual way and a legal way bringing together this couple in marriage. So it both makes him closer to the Nibs than we've realized, but also explains how he might have come to uh, be a part of this signing on to manage an, a West Indian sugar plantation, at least through the law. Because in those days when, when someone came to be married, the settlement was, was decided in advance of the marriage, wasn't it? Absolutely. Uh, at least a, a couple of days in this case is what it was. So right around the time. And the church in which Austin married the Nibses was right there next to Morris Robinson's uh, offices at the, the uh, six clerks offices in Chancery. So it, it puts them all right in this same location in February 1760. It gives us a context to understand how George Austin got there. So it, it could easily be seen as it's sort of a, a matter of convenience almost. If you need two trustees and the obvious one is going to be Morris Robinson because he knows how to do things and then ask George because he's there. It doesn't, I mean, he signed the paper and he agreed to do it, as you say, but it, it doesn't necessarily mean that he had an active interest in, you know, in his affairs at all. Yes, but, and we know that uh, he could have at some point refused to serve, right? And he doesn't seem to have done that. He could have cl cut close ties with Nibs after that. He doesn't seem to have done that. But yes, the proximity seems to be how he may have first become involved. Um, I want to say too about this idea of him signing on to manage a West Indian sugar plantation. I think there are some people who imagine that Reverend Austin had a direct role in the management of the estate. He was really signing on to transfer property and transfer wealth rather than manage. I've seen some recent commentary suggest that before he was a clergyman, he was a trustee, as if he either lived in the West Indies or directly oversaw the work of the uh, plantation. Neither of those is true. He was absolutely complicit in a legal transfer, but in no way was he ever involved as manager. Another man was named for that specifically. George Austin was signing on to transfer wealth, not to manage an estate. Right. And so, I mean, you say, as you point out, these, these years, you know, 1760 to 1840, they were transformational 
for not only the institution of slavery, um, but also the way that it was it was discussed and written about and the activism that grew um, up against it. Do we get a sense of, of, of how all of that change, uh, change these close family ties, how they evolved and even maybe strained over the years? Yes, and I, I think the part that has been focused on recently in the coverage in the Daily Telegraph and the tabloids and on five continents afterward has stressed the James Langford Nibs part of the equation where the Austin family is absolutely complicit in supporting and potentially legally transferring these, uh, these estate uh, profits, these sugar plantation estate profits from Antigua. As things move forward into the 19th century, obviously a great deal changes. In 1807, there is the abolition of the slave trade. In 1833, the first steps to uh, the Emancipation Act and the first steps to try to undo colonial slavery. Austin was not around anymore. Jane Austen was not around anymore by 1833. But I think one of the most important parts of the piece is showing that 80 years after Jane Austen's father was complicit in these legal maneuvers around the sugar plantation, there was something that happened in 1840 that we haven't previously noticed. And I think that is just as important to make sense of in the story of the Austen slavery and anti-slavery. Well, I mean, so, so what did happen in, in 1840? So we haven't previously noticed this, but one of Jane Austen's brothers, Henry Thomas Austen, was a delegate to an anti-slavery convention. And I don't understand how we could possibly have missed this fact for all of these years, except that at this point in his life, Henry Thomas Austin, who'd been a member of the militia, who'd been a failed banker and had turned a clergyman, was now doing public work under the name Reverend H.T. Austin, rather than an, as Henry Thomas Austin. And I think that might be how previous scholars have missed this. But he was a delegate from Colchester, where he was then living, to the World Anti-Slavery Convention that was held in London from June 12th to 23rd, 1840, um, more than two decades after Jane Austen's death, of course, but I think showing that in the course of 80 years, Jane Austen's immediate family uh, had very differing, you might even say opposite engagements with slavery and the slave trade. Mm, and it's, I don't want to overstate this at all, but it's, it's interesting and it's difficult not to feel a slight warmth when you think that it, it was Henry Thomas Austin who was who was Jane's first biographer, wasn't he? So so you sort of think maybe there's a there's some kind of empathy there. Yeah, since some people say he was her favorite brother. Uh, he, he, I think, has been known in the biographical materials as uh, perhaps more impish, flirtatious, risk-taking. Uh, but later in his life, he actually, he married a second time. He married a woman who wrote religious tracts and published under the name Mrs. Henry Austin. He himself published some sermons. He became quite involved in spiritual uh, activities and reform activities as a clergyman. So in the latter part of his life, after Jane Austen died, he, he changed a lot of the kinds of public facing work that we know that he was doing. I was just gonna say, it's, it's, it's an example that you could, you've been able to trace down through the archives, isn't it? But I suppose 80 years in the sense of, if we think about what our grandparents or great grandparents mm did or thought or believed 80 years ago and the way that you know the the climate was then and the politics that that seems to make a lot of sense that the, the opinions shift and people's behavior shift absolutely and the Jane Austen House Museum which started all of this recent uh, material coming up in the uh, in the press and in the tabloids has said it wants a layered and nuanced presentation in its museum signage and displays, which I think is a noble and important thing. And it, it's troubling to me that so many are making fun of this idea as if this is unwarranted. This is absolutely warranted. Mm. And I think what the material that I bring forward shows is that the Austin family was both pro-slavery and anti-slavery over the space of this 80 years. And that this is you know, probably quite common a thing. Although I think the fact that we are now able to definitively say it on both sides of that spectrum about the Austins is important. Um, well, on a, on a parting note then, uh, Demony, am I right in thinking that you'll be discussing all this and, and more in, in, a, in a free lecture online? 
Yes, uh, there is a group called Jane Austen and Company out of the University of North Carolina that has a race and the Regency lecture series. And I'm fortunate to be delivering the last of the lectures in that series, and it will be video archived on their website, Jane Austen and Company. Well, there you go. Um, thank you very much uh, for joining us, Devney Losa. Thank you, Thea. Thank you, Lucy. Still to come, Mary Beard talks us through a selection of pieces from this week's Classics-focused issue of the TLS. But before that, Colin Grant, a regular contributor to paper and podcast, is here to tell us about a new project, Writer's Mosaic, an online platform for new writing and recordings. Colin Grant, thank you very much for joining us. Thanks for having me. I'm very excited to be the warmth bartics for Mary Beard. (laughs) (laughs) No pressure, no pressure, but, you know... Hype, hype the crowd. So, um, I mean, my introduction, introduction there only really scratched the surface. So now the hype is 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 all yours. So why don't you present a uh, writer's mosaic in your own words, and you know, tell us how and 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 why it's come about. Writer's mosaic is a new platform for new writing. It's an initiative of the Royal Literary Fund. I like the title because it doesn't include the word black, bame, or diverse in any shape or form. And it's a very inclusive platform that is going to showcase some amazing writers who you may or may not have heard of. And it's going to allow them to show their skills in writing because we commission essays. Also, we'll be commissioning reviews of books, films, television. And also, we will be providing little films. So in a way, it's not a magazine, but it's a showcase which has magazine-like qualities to it because it will be updated weekly with new content. And it'll include voices like Roger Robinson, the great poet, who has written a poem called Grace, uh, which is a kind of celebration of the NHS. It's about the nurse and nurses who kept his young baby alive. And they'll include people like Vasim Khan, a crime writer who's wrote, who writes a series that include a, a baby elephant as a sidekick for a detective. Um, Which sounds, sounds wonderful. Yeah, so it's, it's <laughs> I'm a range, sold. <laughs> it's a range of And what we're hoping to do, uh, Theo and Lucy, is to just complicate what it is that people might expect from writers like me. I mean, I've been very blessed to be a part of the TLS family, if I can say that, because you've invited me to review lots of films, plays, books. And what's great about what you guys do is that you don't assume that because I'm a tall black man that that's all I'm interested in. So, I mean, I've reviewed quite recently Nomadland for Lu- Lucy, didn't I? Mm, and, yeah, and, and and you correctly predicted that it would get a, a, a shelf full of Oscars, I think. Yeah, I was, I was quite happy with that, to go out on a limb for them. But I also remember being commissioned by you, Thea, to, to write about Guinness, an oral history of Guinness. And in a way, we're going to do the same kind of thing. We're going to invite people to write about things which uh, you may be surprised they'd be interested in. Um, so, for instance, we'll be writing, we'll be asking Ingrid Passard, who's a great novelist who uh, wrote that lovely novel, Love After Love, to talk about uh, middle-aged love and comedy, for instance. Mm. So I think we're going to shake things up and sort of change the perspective of people about what it is that so-called writers of colour. We're not really writers of colour, we're writers of colour and none. We're really open. Um, exactly. I mean, that, that's what, that's one of the things that's so very um, interesting about this because of that that tension, I suppose. And we've spoken about this before. Um, yes. uh, you've written about it for us and we've discussed it on how to, how to diversify without it becoming um, worthy and box ticking and kind of creating segments within within literature or art or whatever it is uh, that we're doing. There's um, one of the writers who you have worked with for Writer's Mosaic, um, Jeffrey Boakier. He writes that uh, maybe I've developed some variant of Stockholm syndrome, but I don't actually mind being defined by the pigmentation of my skin. And I think that matter of being kind of predefined, uh, it could go for class or sexuality or or any number of things but as you were saying before it's that you are x so you write about x things so yeah. part of the answer that you're um finding to that two-way cut is creative themes isn't it you're encouraging people to write and read more freely yes absolutely and as well as the profiling of writers we'll have uh, guest editions where a, a writer an editor a literary programmer a programmer of, of exhibitions will be invited to have a guest edition where they um, invite other writers to address a particular theme, for instance, uh, race in the time of childhood, or the importance of the green environment in which we live, or writing and swimming, for instance. And I think 
I imagine that we are kind of akin to the great motto of Jamaica, which is out of many, one people. So there's this great polarity of voices, which I think would sort of blow people's minds when they hear it, because also would be funny, cheeky, phlegmatic sometimes, provocative sometimes. But I think in a way, I want everybody to be able to reveal themselves in a way that they might only do privately. Uh, so I think sometimes I get a bit frustrated that I don't show my true self because I'm worried about how I might be perceived. But sometimes the kind of the richer side of a person's character is when they are a little, a little bit unguarded and not, mm. too, not too careful about um, their, their, the optics of what they might be saying or, or, or how they might look when they're saying it. We'll hear more from Colin in the second part of the show. And if you've enjoyed what we've discussed so far this week, let me remind you that you can subscribe to this podcast for free wherever you normally get your podcasts and you'll never miss an episode. Something else you might enjoy is Hay Festival, which has revealed its free digital programme for its 34th spring edition, bringing writers and readers together for an inspiring array of conversations, debates, workshops and performances online, Wednesday 26th of May to Sunday the 6th of June. Over 12 days, more than 300 acclaimed writers, global policymakers, historians, poets, pioneers and innovators will take part, launching the best new fiction and non-fiction and interrogating some of the biggest issues of our time. Register for free now at hayfestival.org forward slash Wales. If you thought the only way to get a more defined jawline with natural-looking results was through surgery, think again. Juvederm Volux XC is a non-surgical injectable gel filler that improves moderate to severe loss of jawline definition and can help you achieve natural-looking results with little downtime. Even better, this improved definition lasts up to one year with optimal treatment. No maintenance required. Improve jawline definition for a smooth, sculpted look with Juvederm Volux XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you found the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Welcome back to the TLS podcast. Before we talk to Mary Beard about the temples of ancient Rome, among other things, let's come back to Colin Grant and his new project, Writer's Mosaic. Here's Colin. We'll be hopefully entering into some interesting debates that haven't really been articulated. So, for instance, I know that at the TLS about a year ago, I think, Thea, didn't you, you started to capitalise the word black. So we're going to have a discussion about that, about where, whether people approve of such a decision or, or not. Uh, but we're not going to be dogmatic about it. Uh, we're going to invite lots of people to come into the tent, as it were, and to share their experiences. It's one of the things that frustrated me about the phrase B-A-M-E, is that um, I didn't get the memo. No one bothered to ask me. <laughs> yeah. No one it's, bothered to ask me. Yeah, no, no. I, the only thing I think about that phrase is that it unites everybody in agreeing that it's not, it won't really do, will it? <laughs> yeah, well, it, it speaks to that idea. I don't know whether you've ever been in hospital, Lucy or Thea, uh, where the consultant comes around with his team. I know this because I was in medical school for many, many years. The consultant comes around with his team 
and they start talking over the patient as if the patient's mm. not there. Mm. Whereas the patient has one of the most important inputs into what's being said because they have a history and they might have some inclination about what's wrong with them as well. And so mm. sometimes I think we lose sight of that and these sort of ideas slip into our culture, almost like stowaways. So we're going to kind of shed some light on um, these kinds of important cultural decisions that mark some sort of change in the direction. I think it's it's also maybe because of a sort of nervousness that people have realised that maybe they should be... Um, maybe they should think about 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 what they say a bit more. But as you say, nobody nobody sort of turned around and said, "Well, what what do you think? What what would what's you know what can you think of a phrase that we should use?" And the fact that you are going to talk to lots of people about it seems to be to be exactly the idea. Because why would everybody think the same? But still, it might be possible to come up with a, a slightly better alternative. Yeah, I think so. And I think um, the, the the risk is that we slowly turn towards a culture of silos of separation. We put mm. so-called black people in a box, Asian people in another box. Um, but we have people who uh, have defy uh, identification. I mean, Hannah Lowe, African, Chinese, Caribbean from Essex with blonde hair and blue eyes. Uh, even in my own family, uh, we have Indian heritage. One of my favorite interviews when I was at the BBC was with a, a filmmaker called Shyam Benegal. And uh, I had a lovely interview with him. And, and at the end of the interview, he said to me, so which part of India are your people from? And I thought that was lovely, actually, because I don't want to have any badge. I don't want to wear any label. And I want people to recognise that uh, we have a kind of commonality of experience and purpose. And we shouldn't be afraid of each other because actually we might find that we're more alike than not. Mm. And also, I suppose that the, the commonality um, spans time. So while the emphasis is... Uh, in on writer's mosaic is on new writing it's also about placing those new voices uh underrepresented voices in in a much broader context isn't it but uh, bernardino Aristo has has spoken about the importance of acknowledging a literary heritage in which you are working yes i think that's important so we're not just going to appeal to the candy the young beautiful writers who people adopt very quickly and then get promoted to be spokesmen for everybody and because it doesn't do them any service either, it promotes them too quickly, they're not even ready. We're going to be helping to develop people's skills, but also, as you say, turning back the clock to previous iterations and, and to give them their credit, the Royal Literary Fund have very deep pockets. And um, I'm going to be in place for at least three years. So this is not a, a project that's going to end anytime soon. And hopefully it will be a kind of resource for people so that when you, Thea and Lucy, get tired of me, uh, as you already probably are. <laughs> We're not getting well, now that you've told you, me that you have a medical background, there's a whole other... <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we can get to write about that as well. As, actually, I, I'll never tire of writing for the TLS because, as I said previously, I just love writing for you because of the breadth of things that you cover. Because I think sometimes in our culture, not with the TLS really, but with other newspapers, there's a temptation to say, well, we've got the one hot young black, mm. brown, Asian writer. We'll milk them for as much as we can. Uh, and then we'll go on to the next person. There's a whole cornucopia of writers out there who can say fantastic, interesting, daring, unusual things. I mean, I've made lots of mistakes in my life, and I'm sure that I will be guilty also of perhaps being too exclusive. Um, but I always hark back to a wonderful phrase by Gil Scott Heron in, I think, his last album. He said, um, if you're going to uh, be judged by the mistakes you made, then I've got a big bill coming. <laughs> I've got a big bill coming, but I hope I'm hoping to make the bill a little bit smaller by uh, opening the gates to people to come into Writers Mosaic. Well, so that is Writers Mosaic. Colin Grant, um, thank you very much for talking to us today. Thanks very much, Thea. And thanks, Lucy. Now, this week's issue has a focus on classics. And the first piece is about the importance of religion to the idea of Rome in the light of an important new book, Divine Institutions. The best person to talk us through this is, of course, the person who reviewed it, who also happens to be our classics editor, Mary Beard. We're delighted to have Mary here today. Mary, thank you for joining us. Thank you for inviting me. <laughs> um, and to start with your piece, can you tell us uh, about what Appius Claudius did when he was in a tight spot in <laughs> battle? And, and, and what part that played in the larger construction of Rome as a, as a place and an idea. Yeah, well, there's a famous Roman, 3rd century BC, Appius Claudius Caicus. And, 
he's best known actually because he gave his name to the Appian Way, the, the big road uh, that goes from Rome down south that he he kind of sponsored. But he wasn't exactly a brilliant general. And he was in a tight corner in 296 BC in um, battle uh, in to the north of Rome. And what he does is he tries to think, oh, God, am I going to get myself out of this? Uh, and he goes to the front of his troops. He uh, shouts out to one of the most fierce goddesses of war, Bellona, and says, Bellona, if you grant us victory today, I will give you a temple in Rome. Um, and of course, Bellona did grant victory and Appius Claudius built Bellona, a temple. Now, this is a kind of very common story from this period of Roman history as they're expanding outside Rome, fourth century BC, third century BC, a bit later. Um, you know, the general who's in a tight squeeze, even if they're rather better general than Appius Claudius was, um, calls on a god uh, and says, if you grant us victory, we will we will get, give you a temple in the city. And it's the whole series of these 20 plus over two centuries um, that, uh, that changed the face of the city of Rome. I mean, it's it's very hard for us now to, to kind of imagine Rome when it's a poxy little place without anything very much and certainly not much in the way of public buildings because, you know, we still have a, a kind of filmic vision of Rome, you know, full of marble columns, etc. But it was this series of temples, long before there were theatres, public bath buildings or whatever, that actually gave Rome a public face. And they start to change Rome from being an agglomeration of buildings to being Rome, you know, the capital R. Um, and you'd say as well that they, they, they weren't built as public buildings for the public, but in fact, they did serve public functions, didn't they? They weren't just temples. No, that's right. And I think uh, the whole idea of the, of the Roman temple, or the Greek temple for that matter, is a bit different from what we think, because we tend to... Um, imagine that they're like churches or mosques or synagogues and that you turn up there for a service of some sort. Now, there was no religious ritual inside an ancient temple. All the rituals happened outside. Uh, and what the temple basically was, absolute essentials, was it was um, a house for a statue of a god. So Bologna's temple would have Bologna's statue in it. But also, and you can see how this fitted with the lack of any much other public space, that the insides of these buildings, pretty small though they were, um, became used for, they became the public space of the city. And one of the crucial things that happens in these temples is that the, the, the Senate, the governing council of Rome, uses them to meet in. So they become absolutely focal in the P political dealings of the city. The book is often quite um, technical. Um, the book, I haven't mentioned the name of the author, it's Daniel Padilla-Peralta. You say it's quite technical and also talks about spatial ergonomics, which as far as I can tell is people being squashed into something <laughs> and it makes you feel like a team. It makes you, kind of brings you together. Is that the deal? That's, that's right. I mean, the, the idea is <laughs> that these, uh, these temples are, are pretty small. Uh, and so when the Senate meet in them, it's a bit of a squash. And so they feel like a team. Um, and, you know, I, I think that's a bit like the voting lobbies in the House of Commons, really, um, or so they always say. But I, I think it's this book, Divine Institutions by Padilla Peralta, it's one of those books that, you know, it, it is pretty hardcore. It is pretty technical ancient history. But if you're interested in Rome at all, even though you might not, look, I'm going to be honest, want to read every page of this, there are ideas embedded in this book which will actually change the way we think about how Rome gets off the ground, how Rome becomes Rome. And I think it's sometimes one of the things that the TLS can do, actually, is it can take a book which is pretty technical and, in a sense, get to the quick of it. The issue with the classics issue is also um, it's also having a look at what um, on the face of it sounds sounds like a slightly odd idea. So it's a comic book or graphic novel version of Euripides 
tragedy about what happened to the Trojan women. Um, so it's got a text by the poet um, Anne Carson. Um, what does what does uh, the reviewer Edith Hall make of the whole thing? Well, our reviewer is is wonderfully honest, I think, because she says, "Look, okay, I've been asked to review <laughs> a graphic novel version of Euripides Trojan Women, in which almost all the characters are represented as animals." Yes, I didn't um, even mention that bit and a tree. Yeah, yeah. Um, now this does not sound very promising, does it? She says. And, you know, actually, when I started reading this, I thought, I'm not going to like this. But she goes through the sophistication of this graphic novel. You know, in the end, to say, look, what Carson is brilliant at, and the, um, the designer, Rosanna Bruno, they are brilliant at making you see Euripides' Trojan women afresh. You know, and, you know, most people, uh, most academics probably are likely to be a bit sniffy to start with. But actually, somehow this gets to some of the really tragic. I mean, Euripides Trojan Women is one of the worst, most appalling and upsetting plays in the whole repertoire of uh, ancient tragedy. And my God, she gets to it. They get to it in this roundabout way. I thought, I think I'm going to buy that book. <laughs> it did. It, yeah, it was. It's really persuasive, isn't it? And especially that if they're, the women, a lot of them are represented um, by, as animals and Andromache even as a tree, because she said it, partly because it's just, it's too much. It's unfathomable, uh, uh, all that she's gone through. And it just sounds like the combination of that and, and Anne Carson's text, they get in kind of sideways Yes. You know, rather yeah. than telling us that story again, full on, they get in at a slightly different angle, maybe. Yeah, no, I agree. And I and I think that it was, you know, I, I ended up um, thinking that this was, you know, one of the ways that Greek tragedy does reinvent itself. Um, mm. And that there are ways of saying, how do you represent suffering that is unrepresentable? You know, what... Yeah. So, and what are, what are our what's the repertoire of our ideas for doing that? Yeah, um, and uh, Hall certainly convinced me that that Carson and Bruno had, had nailed that in an interesting way. At least you know for twenty twenty one, there'll be other versions. There'll be more, yeah. <laughs> and uh, also, we also have a look at the extraordinary life of an <laughs> early Christian aristocrat who I've got to say I had never heard of Melania not that one Melania the younger can you tell us about her <laughs> yes, about well, her life um well there are a whole series in the fifth century a whole series of rich Christian women who have largely I think in popular culture been forgotten um who uh, make an absolute revolution, really, in, in the version of their own idea of selfhood and religion, I mean, namely by attempting to, not always successfully, give all their money to the poor and to renounce sex. They're quite often married, um, and they're usually married to, to fellow Christians, and they kind of do a deal, uh, husband and wife, to say that you know they'll breed, but then both of them will uh, devote themselves to God uh, and no sex at all. Oh, so this this wasn't that was not unique to Melania the Younger then this 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 deal that she struck with with Pinion. No, no, no. Pinion is the unfortunate name of her poor husband. Uh, <laughs> I should explain. Um, and she's she's a very prominent one, but there are a number of lives like this um, which um, glorify uh, the renunciation of. Um, wealth and sex by rich women. And they, they've been a bit of a puzzle, I think, for, uh, for historians of the ancient world and also the ancient, you know, the early Christian world, about how you make sense of this. And I think, to be honest, they've sometimes been treated as a bit of a joke, you know, you know, uh, and people rather pilloried the wedding night scene where, you know, where the wife says, darling, there's something I've always meant to tell you that, you know, I intend to vow myself to virginity, you know, whoops. Uh, and then they come to some compromise. Um, 
But I think what um, these books do, and one is written by extremely influential woman, Elizabeth Clark, who's been um, looking at these women for decades now, to try to think what is going on here in, 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 in the way that the role of the woman has been turned upside down um, by a, a particular form of extreme devotion to the Christian faith. You know, that, you know, for centuries and centuries in the ancient Mediterranean world, uh, the role of the woman was not, by and large, you know, very, very few exceptions, to, uh, to be a virgin and to try to give their money away. You know, wealth was good, sex was good, and having babies was good. And one of the things that's going on here is a, actually a puzzling overturn of that. Um, and Melania is an extremely um, interesting one, partly because she's so rich. You know, she is absolutely loaded. She has thousands and thousands of slaves. And, you know, and she is in a kind of slightly endearing way, always getting into scrapes. At a certain point, she decides that she needs to free loads of her slaves. And they say, no, thank you. It's, you, it's just an excuse for you not to have to feed us when the going gets rough. <laughs> yeah, there's that endearing thing of sometimes she finds it really hard to, I mean, the slaves yeah. one that was slightly different, obviously, but that's different because it's people, but sometimes she can't give the stuff away, can she? No, she tries to give it a whole load of coins, gold coins, um, to uh, you know some hermit in the desert. And he doesn't want them because he's vowed to poverty. She doesn't want them because she's trying to um, to, to be poor, even though she's loaded. Um, so she, what she does is she she kind of she leaves the coins with him. Uh, uh, when he finds them, what he does is he goes and throws them in the river. <laughs> her, her attempt to make a grand gesture just being thwarted. But it yeah. is. I mean, you're, and you're right, Mary. It's easy for us to to make jokes about it, but it's an extraordinary thing. It's an extraordinary thing to do. Yes, and, and she spent her life doing it. She didn't do it yeah. for a year. She spent her whole That's life doing right. that, didn't she? That's right. And it's an extraordinary thing, which is really one of the biggest innovations um, with Christianity. I mean, I think that you know, it's easy for us to fixate on the sex here. You know, to say, oh, you know, uh, no sex after we've had, you know, our 2.4 children. But in some way, the attitude to wealth is absolutely extraordinary. I mean, I think if you go around um, the ancient Mediterranean world up to this point and you start to suggest to anybody, apart from some very, very, very extreme and slightly odd philosophers, if you start to suggest to anybody that wealth is a bad thing, they would simply not be able to understand that. Mm. It's a completely different image of power, isn't it? So, I mean, the idea of her and, and, and Melania and, and Pinion uh, traveling around, uh, visiting people, and 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 making these these grand gestures—it's they almost seem like a kind of early Christian power couple or, or something. Yeah. There, there was a sort of celebrity attached to it. Yeah, there is a celebrity, and of course, sometimes they uh, different towns think that it's rather useful to have Melania and Pinion in town because um you know they might be useful to them uh, and but you start to get a glimpse of what it's like living through this overturn of values and what you know what difference christianity makes and the the difference in the kind of social cultural intellectual world is at least as important as um the difference in uh, any kind of theology between this and paganism. You know, something is going on here in the fifth century AD, which is a, a complete change of a set of values that have uh, operated in the classical world for a thousand years. Mm. So that's all available um, in the TLS this week. But before you go, Mary, and I have to say here that this is my idea to talk about this. This is not Mary's idea. I slightly made her talk about it but I don't want to let you go um before we talk about your own contribution to the world of classics not a book this time but a more practical application yeah I've um I've just paid for um two studentships for people from non-traditional ethnic minority backgrounds to come to Cambridge to read classics ten thousand pounds each for every year of the course. Um, and, you know, I think in terms of 
in, in the great scheme of things, that's not going to do a huge amount to increase the diversity of the University of Cambridge, but I hope it'll make a bit of a difference to the two students involved. And I hope also it'll be a, a kind of signal that we're really serious about um, diversifying, not just the field of classics, but uh, academic life in general. And I thought, you know, I've, I've been paid for 40 years to do a subject that I'm really interested in. I don't love the Romans, but I'm very interested in them. <laughs> and um, I've, you know, and they've kept me, you know, they paid my mortgage for 40 years. And I thought it was time for a bit of payback. I'm retiring next year. And I thought, well, do something for somebody else in your field, because maybe they'll, they'll be able to have as lucky a time with the ancient world as I have myself. So, um, well, it's it's a, a wonderful idea, and um, I'm sure we'll be, um, you know, seized on. <laughs> and then, yeah, somebody can, a couple of people who might not otherwise will study classics and they'll be able to read all your books and yeah. get into it the way the way you did. Yeah. Um, people are put off now by the huge amount of debt you have to get into. So but also, happening. there's still that thing about there's still that problem with it being so impractical. You know, you still hear that. Well, what's the point of learning yeah. a dead language? You know, and and I mean, in the end, there isn't a point to it, is there? No, and, no. you know, I think that um, you know we can we can make very clear to potential applicants that our students who read classics have a fantastically good employment record. You know, they do a subject that they're good at, they enjoy, they're fluent at, they've got the gift of the gab, etc., cetera, etc., cetera, and they walk into jobs. Well, at least pre-COVID they did, but I think there are still people who necessarily worry about that. And there are people's mums and dads who say, well, you know, if you're going to do accountancy or law, there'd be a job at the end, but classics. And, you know, in a way, this is an attempt to put a finger in the dike over that argument. Yeah, well, it, it's a, a wonderful idea. Um, and Mary, thank you as ever for coming on and talking to us. Thank you, thank you. That is all we have time for this week. Our thanks go to Colin Grant, Mary Beard and Devney Loser. Thank you for listening to this episode of the TLS podcast produced by Lee Meyer. We'll be back next week. But for now, from Lucy Dallas and from me, goodbye. deserves the best and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.